Welcome to Hospitals in Focus from the Federation of American Hospitals. Here's your host, Chip Kahn. COVID-19 has significantly disrupted so much in our nation over this last year, particularly the delivery of health care. But it has also created an opportunity for some of our providers to demonstrate the great good they can do for their patients. The pandemic is highlighting the extraordinary ways our caregivers are meeting the unprecedented challenges of caring for patients in all settings across the care continuum, including post-acute care. A recent report from the research firm ATI Advisory highlights the vital role of long-term care hospitals, LTACs, in caring for many of the nation's most medically complex patients. These facilities are saving lives during the COVID crisis and cementing their unique contribution to patient care and placing a spotlight on the critical role they can play. Ben Breyer is the CEO of Kindred Healthcare, a major post-acute care provider. In our conversation today, he is lending us his expertise in discussing the role of LTACs in the care continuum, the care of COVID patients specifically, and the highlights of the new ATI advisory report. Thanks for joining us today, Ben. Chip, thanks. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Ben, uh, to get started, will you tell us a bit about Kindred Healthcare, your vision and aspirations for the company, and your role as the CEO? Sure. I'll be happy to, Chip. Thank you again. Chip, for those that haven't paid close attention to Kindred over the last couple of years or followed our story, we've gone through quite an evolution, a number of different changes uh, in our organization. We've gone from a, a publicly traded company to a private company. We've sold a number of assets over the years, including our uh, large home health and hospice business to our friends over at, uh, at Humana. Uh, we've exited the skilled nursing business and some other things. And we've really, you know, I would say established a, a foothold now as what we like to, to call ourselves the, the nation's leading specialty care hospital company. Simply put, I think for us, Chip, our mission is to try and help our patients reach their highest potential for health with what we call intensive rehabilitation and intensive uh, medical care. We today at, at Kindred operate uh, hundreds of hospitals uh, across the country. I think we do business in 35 states or so. We run, as you said, uh, long-term acute care hospitals, LTACs. We run inpatient rehab facilities. Uh, we run hospital-based rehab units. We run acute behavioral hospitals. and We also run hospital-based uh, behavioral health units. Kindred, I think today, Chip, is, is primarily known for not only the care of these very medically complex patients that we take care of, but really for our ties and our relationships with large health systems uh, across the country in the form of uh, our joint venture model that we have with many of these folks. We have today nearly 150 joint ventures uh, with some of the nation's leading academic medical centers, uh, as well as many other regional and national uh, health systems across the country as well. And we prioritize, as I said earlier, delivering clinical solutions and reducing costs to what we always talk about, this 10% of the medically complex uh, patient population 
that in many ways account for 60 or 70 percent of the total cost of healthcare in our country today. Thanks, Ben, for that review of Kindred Healthcare. Our focus today is going to be on long-term care acute hospitals, LTACs. Uh, we're going to drill down there. Will you tell us more about the unique role of LTACs in the patient care continuum? Sure. Be happy to. Thank you again. So long-term acute care hospitals, or as we've said, LTACs, they're, they're actually, I think some don't know, they are actually certified, CHIP, as acute care hospitals. So we have the same joint commission, the same accreditation, the same certification as any other acute care hospital does. But these are, as I said earlier, specialized hospitals that are really for patients who have a, a couple of different criteria. One, they might have been in an ICU in an intensive care unit for at least three days. Uh, two, they may have been on uh, some prolonged mechanical ventilation under a ventilator. Uh, and, and, and typically, uh, our average length of stay is somewhere around about 25 days in these hospitals, where you might stay two or three or four days in an acute care hospital, you're staying for a longer period of time in a long-term acute care hospitals. LTACs primarily take care of a very medically complex, high acuity patient. It's a very unique uh, population. Our patients have, for example, multiple systems failures. Our patients have organ failures. Uh, our patients have uh, what has become known, particularly in a post-COVID world, uh, post-intensive care syndrome. Uh, LTACs are today really playing a, a, a vital role, I, I would say, in, in helping to achieve you know, a more efficient recovery, if you will, of patients who are at these higher risk levels, that if they weren't cared for in our kind of high acuity setting, they would likely get readmitted back to a short-term acute care hospital or e even worse. And, you know, I know you probably talk to a lot of CEOs in the healthcare space, particularly on the provider side that get to, to say this, but, but I, I am just, you know, honored and, and, and humbled every day when, when, I, when I think about uh, walking the floors of our LTACs, as I try and do often, and, and witnessing, I don't, know, I don't know, Chip, that there's any better way to say it, just some of these miraculous recovery stories for patients who have come into these long-term acute care hospitals, gotten this specialized care, and honestly might not have recovered had they not wound up in that setting. So that, that's really what an LTAC does today. Ben, I, I know considering that COVID is one of the areas that, that you've focused on, and COVID has upended the way many patients are receiving care, including the treatment of severely ill patients. How have LTAC stepped up in the treatment of COVID patients in the hotspot areas when the acute care hospitals have reached their capacity? Well, first, I'm sure like most people, you know, you, you and I, are sitting here today, I, I'm sure you find it just as unbelievable as I do that we're, I think we're probably almost exactly what a year outright since since the US healthcare system was basically turned uh, upside down on its head because of the COVID-19 pandemic. It's amazing to reflect on the year that we've all had. And, you know, LTACs, I think, like, like other hospitals, particularly in the early stages of the pandemic, Chip, we, we had to first determine what we knew and what we didn't know about this virus. Things like transmissibility, the severe medical impact it had on other parts of our, our patient population. It, it, like most, took us a minute 
to figure out really what we were dealing with in this in this COVID environment. And when when the surge began to really overwhelm hospitals uh, across the country, I thought I thought one of the things that our policymakers and regulators did a really good job of in a really tough environment, CMS, Congress, et cetera, you know, they they took very swift action at a very early stage around providing regulatory relief, uh, waiver relief. And and this allowed for, and I think really encouraged, if you will, LTACs to effectively become, if you will, an extension of the short-term acute hospital and particularly of those ICUs that were filling up uh, so rapidly. And so initially, again, in the early stages of COVID, LTACs really began trying to be that extension. And we did it by, by admitting uh, many of the people who were medically complex, uh, many of the people who were, were severely ill that were sitting in ICUs and hospitals, that the hospitals needed to move out to create more capacity to take this COVID surge. That, that was really the initial stages. But I would say that by, by the end of April into early May, as we at Kindred and others learned more about the virus specifically, our, our hospital and payer sources, I think, really began to realize that LTACs uh, had, in, in many ways, the, the, the exact clinical expertise that, if you think about what a COVID patient is, that, that is specifically required to treat one of those patients. You know, we, we also, I think in the early stages, if you remember, as I know you must, we had already in place the safety measures, the PPE, the protective equipment, and many other things that many of our, our, our friends in the post-acute space did not have. And so we were able to respond, you know, I think very quickly to the cause. And so, you know, at that point, we actually started dedicating quite a bit, uh, Chip, of our LTAC capacity towards helping with the COVID surge. We, we created COVID-specific units where we isolated off and had COVID-specific units in some of our hospitals. And in a number of hospitals and in a number of communities across the country, we actually, Chip, had COVID-specific hospitals whose only job was to take people who were infected with the disease. It was remarkable to watch our LTACs in action in the early stages and now, you know, as a long-term partner dealing with, with this pandemic. Stepping in the way you did to alleviate some of this burden on acute care capacity, you mentioned some of them, but what kind of accommodations for your existing patients and those other patients coming online without COVID uh, did you have to make to make the whole thing work, both for the COVID patients and for your other patient population? Well, I mean, we, we've always had very deep relationships with, with our referral sources, but you know, I think the burden on hospital bed and ICU capacity was really a unique experience for all of us. You know, our, our, our LTACs are accustomed to, as I said earlier, to treating these medically complex patients who have unusual and, and, and different sort of viral presentations. Uh, we've seen all kinds of different diseases and bugs and different things that have gone through our hospitals. It, it, it is what we know. It's what we do. It's what we do regularly. And, and I think, Chip, to, to your question specifically, it's actually what made us kind of uniquely prepared uh, and qualified uh, to care for these very severely ill uh, COVID-19 patients. Um, I think that, you know, once we knew what we were dealing with, uh, we knew that 
the things we did well, like isolation of patients, disinfection of rooms and of the surrounding area of patients, and the various different cohorting protocols that we've gotten very good at over the years, that these were actually going to be ideal for, for this patient setting. And we, we just worked hard to apply all that to this pandemic crisis. Kindred has uh, care settings across the country. Uh, how has this national footprint and the breadth of these settings allowed you to respond to hotspots more effectively? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. I, I, I think about that a lot. You know, were we better off being across the country nationally or would we have been better off in one local market? I'm not sure I know the exact answer, but I, I do think that, that having a national presence, I, I think in retrospect, you know, I'll give you a couple of specific examples. I, I think it, it, it turned out to be, to be a real asset uh, in, in, in this emergency. I mean, the, the first thing that I, that I really reflect on and remember was I remember watching the map uh, early on in the, in the pandemic and seeing the, the various hotspots across the country sort of pop up. And I'm sure if we all you know, remember back and we think about what happened in the Pacific Northwest, right, up in Seattle, and then obviously the New York and New Jersey experience, and then how it moved to the Midwest and then down to Texas and Florida. And, and in many ways, we were living it in real time in each of these markets. So the things we learned in real time about how to handle some of these incredible challenges in Seattle, we were able to very quickly transpose and put to work when we had to face those in the Northeast corridor or other, other, other parts of the country. So that, that the, I think was the first thing it, it, I guess a better way to say it, it really allowed us to kind of prepare for the surges in the markets as we, as we sort of saw them coming. But I think there were other tangible examples where having some, you know, national presence was was compelling for us as an advantage as well. I mean, the first thing I was thinking about was was just from an equipment perspective. Now, obviously, as as we've talked earlier, we we take care of a lot of folks with 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 respiratory disease. Uh, we use a lot of mechanical ventilation ventilators. Obviously, COVID nineteen, particularly in the early stages, created a need for that you'll remember there was a shortage right across the country. People couldn't find a ventilator. How are we going to get a ventilator? What are we going to do? We had car companies that were producing uh, ventilators. And we were able, because of our national presence, to move equipment from markets that, that, that had not been hit by a surge into other markets that really desperately needed them. We actually, in many cases, Chip, took ventilators out from other parts of the country and we, we put them on loan to not just kindred hospitals, but to other hospitals that were in desperate need of them. So we were able to move equipment around that I think, you know, having a national presence helped us in that regard. PPE, you know, was another example of that, I think. We stockpiled it and had it in certain areas and we ran out of it in others. You know, you remember when we couldn't get gowns and masks and gloves and various things, particularly in the early stages, we were able to put things on planes and in boxes and get them to our hospitals so that we never, you know, ran out, never were really in jeopardy of running out. And, and I think the last thing, and I, I, this is an important point that I want to make, particularly as it relates to our kindred teammates, we, we on a number of occasions actually had kindred personnel, nurses, clinicians, respiratory therapists, radiologists, et cetera, that were willing to get on a plane and go to a hotspot and help provide care where we might have had a number of clinical personnel that were down with the disease or were infected uh, or where they had to take on because of surge activity. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think having having a national presence and national scale was was probably incredibly helpful to our ability to provide care during this time. As I mentioned in the beginning of 
our podcast, ATI Advisory recently released a report about the role of LTACs during the COVID-19 pandemic. What did the report find and what did you particularly think was important in their results? First, let me, let me just say, I, I think that this ATI study is a pretty critical one. And I, and I hope, I hope uh, policymakers and folks out there that care about our issues will, will get a chance to read it. You know, I, I expect that there are going to be an enormous number of studies done uh, over time, uh, over the next weeks and months and years to come about what we did and what we didn't get right in our nation's healthcare delivery system during this emergency. But, you know, I, I think this is one of the first sort of lookbacks, if you will, to kind of do so. And and the study chip that you're referring to, I think it's it, it's called the role of LTAC hospitals in the COVID-19 pandemic. I, I think it demonstrates, I would argue unequivocally, the, the critical role that, as you and I have just been talking about, that LTACs played uh, during, the, during the pandemic. I think it also, I thought, interestingly, proposed uh, some considerations for future uh, healthcare policy development, which I think it's important that we not only learn about what went right, what went wrong, but what we can do differently in the future. But I mean, I think in the end, the, the, the study essentially, you know, points in, in many ways to the important role that LTACs played uh, over the last year. I'll give you a couple of examples if I could. I mean, LTACs, I think, according to the study, were uniquely prepared for the clinical complexities of some of the most severe and challenging COVID-19 patients. The study clearly states that. The study, I think, codifies that, that LTACs have become, uh, in many ways, even more clinically complex during the COVID crisis than they were before the COVID crisis. And we already were operating with very high CMI score, very high Apache score, very high you know, case mix uh, comorbidity, if you will, around, around the patients we take. And now you know, our CMI in these hospitals is, you know, through the roof in terms of the, the clinical complexity. I think the study chip, you know, in many ways validated that LTACs have the clinical capabilities to take care and be a valuable partner that when we need to flex ICU capacity, that LTACs are appropriate to do so. And in many ways, that not everyone in post-acute care is able to do that. I think, you know, as I said also, Chip, importantly, the study it talks about sort of future policy considerations. And maybe I'll, if I could, I'll just mention a couple of those as it relates to the study. First, I, I think it, it clearly states that short-term acute hospitals, STACs as we call them, that they should continue to take the lead on communicating, and they use the word institutionalizing, effective communication around what surge capacity and what plans should look like in a public health emergency. In many ways, it was the the short-term acute regional hospital system that had to figure out how they were going to scale up and size up their ICU capacity, that federal policymakers should develop, I think in the study's view, payment policy that supports physician-driven site-of-care decisions. And I think this is a really important thing that, you know, we've talked about a lot in the past, Chip, but it gets lost, I think, a little bit in the noise. And the study clearly, I think, talks about that when doctors decide where a patient should go, in many and most instances, that patient gets to the right place. When policymakers are dictating because of certain, you know, presumed and perceived criteria, uh, they don't always wind up in the right place. I think the study showed that LTACs should further promote the education of our unique capabilities, that we should take care of mental health type of issues, that there's a huge need for that. 
et cetera. So, I, you know, I mean, I think we'll see, but I, I, I encourage people to read the study. And I thought that it, it shone a pretty good light on, on, on LTAX and on what they did in the pandemic. Great. That's so helpful in terms of understanding what they did and then going back and taking this snapshot of what happened over the last many months. Looking at that period and thinking about the pandemic and its disruptive nature of the care continuum, do you see permanent changes in its wake in the relationship between acute and post-acute care? Well, the short answer is yes. Absolutely. I, I, I do. I mean, I'll, I'll dig into it a little bit, but I mean, I, I would say clearly there has been, you know, this enhanced recognition, if you will, that if you can have transparent communication and, and collaboration between hospitals, payers, and, and certain aspects of post-acute care, um, you know, you're going to succeed better in this kind of an environment and that that has to become more permanent. It can't just be because we had this, we're going to do that, that that has to become more permanent. I think it will. I'd also argue, you know, in terms of, you know, permanent changes that that long-term acute care hospitals and I, and I would say IRFs and patient rehab facilities, and I, I would throw acute, acute behavioral hospitals in as well, that they have proven in this pandemic that they are key counterparties and partners to this capacity need and to health systems across the country. The services that were provided, the capabilities that were shown clearly I think are going to, I hope, permanently create an environment where, where referral sources really understand the capabilities. And my, my sense, I mean, I, you know, one of, the, one of the fun things I get to do in my job, Chip, is I talk to lots and lots of different hospital CEOs because of all of our, our joint ventures across the country that are, you know, that are running big health systems. I think COVID has changed them forever, uh, you know, in, in a couple of specific ways. I mean, if you think about it, we are never, as a provider group, going to run out of PPE again, right? We are never going to let ourselves do that. You know, we used to have just-in-time inventories and and let's keep our balance sheets clean. We, we're we going to always have inventory and we're not we're not ever going back to that. We're not going to risk our balance sheets, you know, and, and not that we would pre-pandemic, but certainly I think keeping a closer eye on on our balance sheets going forward. And I think that that these same partners are never going to forget who stood with them in this crisis, like LTACs and IRFs and behavioral hospitals, and really delivered the goods on helping them to extend their capacity needs when they needed it. And I don't think that those relationships uh, are going to change. I think in many ways it's uh, it's going to make those relationships stronger and stronger than they ever were before. Ben, the ATI advisory study set out a policy agenda that you have given us some sense for. Are there additional policy items you would recommend for Congress and the new administration to consider in order to provide the support for LTAC patients and the frontline staff who care for them? First, I mean, this is a simple one. We, we, we should be extending the PHE, the Public Health Emergency Declaration, until we know the full effects and the extent of the pandemic and all of its after effects. I mean, our, our sense, looking at COVID recovery type patients and looking at where the pandemic is still today and the numbers that we still have around the country, that while we're obviously enthusiastic about the vaccine distribution and about where we're at, we've, we, we've unfortunately got a long way to go. We're all exhausted by it, but the facts are we have a long way to go. And the PHE just simply must get extended. So that, that, that's the first thing. And, 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 and I suspect Congress and the policymakers will will do that and the Biden administration will do that. 
We also think more broadly that Congress, and, and I would argue the Biden administration, should understand, should try to understand, if they don't already, the, the lessons of what we've all just lived with, with regards to post-acute care. And there are a couple of components of that, Chip. The first is, is that, as I've said now a couple of different times, not all post-acute settings are created equally. That has clearly been shown in this pandemic to be true. Uh, not all, all settings should be viewed under one policy or reimbursement blanket umbrella. Uh, just saying that out loud, I think, is a good first place for policymakers and regulators to start. Policymakers, I think, should continue to recognize the lessons learned around the care capabilities that we've talked about, and they should apply uh, payment and regulatory structure accordingly. And I think that if we can do that, along with extending the public health emergency, that, that's a good place for policymakers to start vis-a-vis -vis our industry. Ben, thank you for joining me today. And uh, where can our listeners go to learn more about Kindred and the ATI advisory report? Well, Chip, thanks for having me. Uh, I enjoyed being with you today and getting a chance to chat about what we do here at Kindred. Uh, for those interested, uh, we'd encourage you to go to our website. That's kindred.com. And I know for the ATI study, if you go to atiadvisory.com, you can pick up that study. And I know there's a lot of other research available there as well. So thanks again, Chip. Great. Thanks for listening to Hospitals in Focus from the Federation of American Hospitals. Learn more at FAH.org. Follow the Federation on social media at FAH Hospitals and follow Chip at Chip Con. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Hospitals in Focus. Join us next time for more in-depth conversations with healthcare leaders.